I understand that there's a desire to sort of try and get some comment from Banksy, but it's not going to happen. Mm. Never. They wouldn't not unless even... you pin him up against a wall and threaten him with violence. Not, not even a sort of, you know, three sentences on an email. No, from... no because what, what's in it for Banksy? I mean, Banksy is a notoriously selfish individual mm. and self-serving. And giving someone like Andy Link anything, why? The scale of ego that Andy portrays is entirely a, on a different level than what Banksy requires. I mean, for Banksy to remain Banksy, it takes some doing. For Andy Link to be Andy Link just takes getting up out of bed. <laughs> that's... Uh, that's that's quite an uncharitable way of describing I'm an uncharitable person. <laughs> and he knows it as well. <laughs> I warned him. <laughs> I'm sure you remember that voice. That's Robin Barton, the art dealer who specialises in the weird world of Banksy's. And what he said really stuck with me. Not Robin admitting that he's an uncharitable person. I think he quite enjoyed making that crystal clear in the time we spoke together. No. Banksy is a notoriously selfish individual. When I started out making this podcast, I knew I'd be diving headfirst into the wild world of Andy Link. I knew I'd have to explore rabbit hole after rabbit hole in an attempt to find out his true motivations for kidnapping a Banksy statue. But what I didn't realise was that on this journey, I'd actually start to uncover a new side to the world's best-known anonymous street artist, a potentially murkier side. I'm Jake Warren, and from Podomo and Message Heard, this is Who Robs a Banksy? As we dig deep into every nook and cranny of Andy Link's life, both the good and the bad, it seems only fair that we also take a proper look at Banksy. Now, I know what you may be thinking. How the hell do you do that with the whole anonymous thing? I mean, he is quite literally one of the world's best-kept secrets. But his motivations play a key part to this story. Because really, why was he so reluctant to sign that print? And just what does he think about being robbed in a daring daytime heist? If he didn't hate Andy before, he must really hate the bloke now, surely. Before diving into the world of street art, I had a pretty positive feeling about Banksy and Truth. It's kind of exciting when you hear he's done a new piece of graffiti and generally I believed him and Andy had some similarities. I mean, they've both made a career of sticking two fingers up at the establishment. Everyone knows that Banksy's art attacks the privileged and the powerful, from politicians to the police, and has themes of revolution and subversion running throughout it. And at its core, graffiti, an art form that's entire premise is based on being both illegal and anonymous. And I think it's quite clear already how Andy feels about rules and authority. So our story does feel quite balanced. Here are two artists raging against the machine with their own brand of resistance. Case closed, right? My first red flag came from Andy. I won't say he's a fraud. I won't, what I won't say, he just does anything that's good for him. I don't think he believes in, in the cause as much as he says. Okay, so Andy hates Banksy. This comes as no real surprise. After all, this is a man who he's held a grudge against for nearly 20 years. 
And I know for a fact he's really let a lot of people down over the years who've done work for him, refused to give him provenance for the works he's done and been a really nasty... I didn't take too much notice of the accusation from Andy that Banksy has let people down. To be honest, I thought he was mostly talking about himself and his refused signature. But the more I spoke to people in the art world and even those who used to be close to Banksy, the less it seemed that it was just sour grapes from Andy. Gilly, Andy's associate, actually used to work for Banksy as his photographer. And while I was excited to get one degree of separation closer to hearing from Banksy himself, I was gutted because Gilly hasn't spoken to Banksy for a while. In fact, it seems a lot of his old crew haven't. I mean, he cut himself off from lots of people. In you know, lots of people in in the graffiti world kind of lost touch with him. It was like you know, I'm famous now and I don't want anything to do with anyone. Even the people who put him where he is, and the people who he stole his ideas from. There it was again, the claim that Banksy has taken ideas from other people. And actually, when we spoke to Matilda Battersby, former arts editor of The Independent, it turned out one of these claims of idea theft had been well documented. I've met Xavier Prue, who's Blechler Rat. Blechler Rat, known as the father of stencil graffiti, is particularly famous for his stenciled rats. The style is unmistakably similar to Banksy's. He showed me emails from Banksy, you know, conversations they'd had about art and about the sort of derivation of the style that essentially Xavier Prue developed because he had been in Italy as a child. He's a little bit older, I think he's 71. And he'd seen the stencils of Mussolini on the walls in Italy. And he'd sort of combined this in his head with um, the kind of graffiti style that was coming out of New York in the 80s. And, you know, Banksy at one point, I think he said in one of the biographies, I think it was the unauthorised biography, so I don't know if it's true, but he said that everything that he's done, he looks at and sees that Blechlerat did 20 years earlier. There's animosity between them, or there has been, because they got into a bit of a fight over email. And one of them gets the credit. And one of them is hugely wealthy. It's hard to say where the line between inspiration and intellectual theft is, but the claims kept coming thick and fast and becoming more serious each time I spoke to someone new. Obviously, Banksy doesn't make any of his art. You know, he's got a band of people that produce his art for him. Wayne Anthony is someone who is respected in the street art world, being the co-founder of London Street's art design magazine. And he even mentioned one piece of Banksy's art that we're particularly interested in, the infamous Drinker statue. Even in the statue, in the making of that statue, it, we come to find out that it wasn't by the person who, who Banksy paid to do it. I mean, he, even that, the, the story gets twisted all the time and it turned out it was these two twins who hardly got paid any money. You know, I, I, I have nothing against Banksy in, in any way, shape or form. I, th I think what he's done is amazing and the way that he helps artists is amazing. But our boy AK-47, you know, he's, he's a disruptive force. So Banksy isn't just taking inspiration from other artists. In some instances, there are claims that he's not even making the art himself, which, when it comes to the drinker, is especially interesting. Who owns a statue that wasn't even made by the artist to begin with? It all plays into the wider question that I'm really interested in. How genuinely anti-establishment is Banksy really? 
He's the most establishment figure I can think of. But everyone's still saying, oh, he's done a he's done a rat on a wall in you know Kiev or something. It's like, oh wow. The more I got stuck into this story, the more interested I was becoming in the character of Banksy. His anonymity, while a tool to keep his identity hidden, is also useful in batting any difficult questions or scrutiny away. People really do love a masked crusader. And for Banksy, this means he can simply do whatever he wants. He's not anti-establishment anymore, is he? But he's still perceived as. And he's also perceived as a mythical figure where if anybody wanted to find out who he was and publish pictures of him and name him, they would do it. But the media are completely complicit in the idea of having this kind of Robin Hood type figure. Or Robin somebody. But surprisingly... Andy was one of the first people to be a bit generous to Banksy. You can't really say it's him, it's his machine behind. You've got to remember, behind Banksy is a huge machine. It's true. The mysterious pest control who we've tried with numerous attempts to contact are known to run Banksy's affairs. And we have no idea of just how large the organisation is, or who exactly is in charge. Beyond pest control there's no way of knowing who is really calling Banksy's shots. Robin was also sceptical about Banksy's anti-establishment claims, particularly in relation to his surprising links to some of London's most prestigious auction houses like Sotheby's. It's, it's a difficult one. I mean, I would think he would like to see himself outside of the establishment still, but holding hands with Sotheby's doesn't make a very good picture, really, for a street artist. No. Yes, I mean, that's about as establishment as it gets, yeah. isn't it? And, you know, with the uh, Girl with Balloon stunt, the shredded Girl with Balloon, what you're looking at there is obviously a collaboration between the auction house and the artist. That was slightly too uh, too perfect with, to be yeah, true, just a, right? just a little bit trite as well. Yeah. <laughs> this stunt Robin is referring to involved one of Banksy's most recognisable prints, Girl with Balloon, which was up for auction at Sotheby's. After being sold for over one million quid to an unnamed telephone bidder, the print then immediately began to be shredded by a secret contraption built into its frame. It's since gone on to sell for the ridiculous sum of over 18 million Great British pounds under the new title Love is in the Bin, a record for the artist. But Robin wasn't sure. Although I guess the person that bought it didn't it immediately go up a ridiculous amount in value because of that what, stuff? you think someone actually bought it? Oh, maybe not. Well, <laughs> I mean, you have to understand with auction houses that they are so opaque and murky. I mean, there's no way of knowing whether anyone's ever spent that kind of money on anything. Oh, so it's, it's all a game of smoke and mirrors. It's all a game of smoke and mirrors. All this got me thinking, who's the real anti-establishment character in this story? Banksy? the subversive street artist pioneer and darling of Sotheby's, or Andy, the illegal rave planning, fetish party leading, football hooligan Yorkshireman. Before Andy was AK-47 the artist, he lived many lives. He was drawn to anything that kicked back against the system. Politicians, the police and the media, they were all fair game. It's the same perception we have of Banksy, we know Andy has this knack of finding a way to insert himself in the middle of every subculture going. It's a testament to the kind of person he is, who doesn't take no for an answer and who tries anything once. Even high-profile art theft. 
Well, most people who've heard of Banksy know about his anti-establishment image, so it's only fair to give you a balanced view. I think it's time to examine Linky's own personal brand of anti-establishment to try and get a clearer picture of just who we're dealing with. There's no boundaries for him anywhere. He doesn't know what the meaning of the word boundary is. The first stop on this journey through Andy's life. Well, perhaps it's one of the more unusual scenes he found himself entangled in. All our people down there, let's show them in, in straight land what we can do and what we're all about. Thanks a lot and let's have it. The fetish scene has long been a staple of British underground culture. One of the largest nights, Torture Garden, was started in the 90s. Picture dark rooms, loud tunes, leather, latex, and lots of flesh. But fetish and BDSM were still taboo at this time. And Torture Garden venues were often closed or their events cancelled. There were even tabloid exposés in the 90s with headlines like Naughty Nights in the Garden. Subversive, anti-establishment, and against the grain of society? Sign Andy up. He saw the opportunity and began his own fetish nights under the moniker of Finger in a Matchbox International. Hi, my name's Andy Link. This is Mostly Harmless. Let me show you around. This is my favourite piece. Had this made for me a while ago. It's the most awesome piece of machinery you've seen. As you can see, it's foot plates where you strap people on. Later on, we'll probably get somebody tied on there to show you. And that does the business. Follow me. He even made his way into the pornography industry, producing, distributing and performing in what Andy called decent amateur English porn under the company Northern Lad Productions. What's your stage name, Andy? Bobby Tupper. (laughs) (laughs) For Andy, the boundaries of right and wrong are sometimes blurred. The more I dug into his many past lives, the more conflicted I found myself becoming. The fetish side of Andy was something that surprised me. There were moments that he seemed genuinely progressive at a time when sexuality was still shrouded in societal shame. In our club, we ask you to abide by the two great rules. Gentlemen, do not touch unless invited and always show respect to all people at all times. We follow it by ladies. If you have any problems with unwanted advances, Please inform our security who will deal this matter swiftly. But it started to feel like every time I saw something I liked, I'd pretty immediately find something I didn't. As we scoured the old school VHS tapes that Andy had brought in, there was a particularly uncomfortable moment when Andy was in the audience of Trisha, a classic British salacious talk show from the early 2000s. The guests are a 16-year-old girl who wants to get into glamour modelling and her mother. Andy was in the audience, as he so often is in these VHSs. Can I ask you, this is an idea you want to take up for a full-time career. Mm. Yeah, so, but is the escorting on, on the agenda or is it modelling and then follow Who's it Who's this on? question, from Claire or...? From, to, the, to the girl, to the young girl. Mm, no, I, yeah. I, I, I don't want to do any escort work or nothing like that. Do, you want to do, you'd like to do, move on to modelling? Yeah. So you do modelling first and then do stripper grams and stuff like that. Yeah, but... Why do you, what do you ask? What's well, your knowledge? Well, I just work in the industry, that's all. And I, what do you do? I, I run an agency, make movies, do... What sort of movies? Adult movies. He says you have to be 18 to 
to be part of the adult industry. And yet... If you are serious and you want to do modelling, I, I can offer you to... You I can offer you... You can shut up, because it ain't up to you. I can offer you now to legitimate, legitimate modelling. She's not Legitimate modelling with a top agency working... And at I can, 16? At 16, I can guarantee you will be in a newspaper within one week. And what would she be topless. looking like? Topless? Topless. It wasn't until 2003 that the age of consent for topless modelling was raised to 18. But just because something is legal, that doesn't make it right. It's pretty clear to me, and to the audience too, judging by the cries of outrage, that what Andy is suggesting is quite shocking. And while he was insistent in other tapes, he was in the industry for the love of it. And I'm not in it for the money. If I were in it for the money, I'd get a, a real job. That could have been more spin. Would you, make any money? would you make any money out would of it? Would I make out any money yeah. out of it? Yeah. I would make a small commission of oh, all money oh, she gets. Oh, yeah. Hey, everybody, well, if I'm going to put work, started out with work and man, a small manager, a fee is what it's acceptable. I was really trying to weigh up my opinion of Andy with the things I was hearing and seeing. His story is an interesting one and one definitely worth telling. But I wasn't sure where I stood on some of the things he'd got up to in his past. Well, plenty of it could be put down as a result of his circumstances. I wasn't sure if that excused any of it. If there is such a thing as a moral line, I don't think Andy has any reservations about occasionally straying over it. I found it interesting that many of the groups that Andy wound up being a part of were subversive, anti-establishment and even illegal. At the time he was dipping his toes into fetish, the tabloids were desperately trying to vilify those involved. And Andy was involved with another community who in the 80s and 90s were fighting their own desperate battle against their negative portrayal in the media and intense demonization by politicians. The illegal rave scene gigantic outdoor raves happening across the region almost every weekend. Sometimes they ended in confrontations with the police after residents complained of deafening music in the small hours of the morning. This summer, all has been quiet. Too quiet, say party organisers who accuse the police of using new legislation to try to stamp out the craze altogether. It was actually, perhaps surprisingly, quite a natural progression for those involved with football hooliganism. It was like when Acid House came along and that sort of... There was a, an article in the face that did Acid House kill the football hooligan. It kind of did, you know? A few years before that, so that's, those are the people you beat up. Then all of a sudden you're all together hugging each other in a club. Wayne Anthony had known Andy for over 20 years. They met in the street art world, but Wayne was also involved in setting up raves during the late 80s. The backdrop of parties when I started doing them was that there was no parties. There was, there was the pubs, clubs, everything shut at 2 a.m. London town would shut down and that would be it. And, you know, you'd have to go home. And normally, you know, you do make your own parties, but normally everybody went home separately. Andy was keen to get a piece of the action. And a DJ friend of Andy's, Alistair Cook, and his pal Huggy gave him the opportunity. Hey, Linky, you know how to sort things out. I want to do a ravings. I've got a venue. I've got these woods. And we, can you help help me sort it out? It's, you know, you know how logistics of how it works, getting equipment and that. And I went, yeah, I suppose so. It's not hard. Andy had no idea what he was about to get himself mixed up in. 
Ever the man with a plan, he found a different venue underneath a motorway bridge and called the rave Finger in a Matchbox, a homage to his former fetish nights. But just like his football hooliganism, this is where Andy's true anti-establishment spirit comes in. When I do anything, I like to do it old school. He wasn't just doing something illegal for the sake of it. There was an actual message underpinning it all. So there were, it was, again, it was quite a strong political, if you want to call it political, but a social group that were fighting for our, against the... I would like to kick against the system. There's no such thing as society, as ex-Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher famously said. And up and down the country, people were finding ways to counter that notion through creating their own sense of community. She had privatised a lot of industries, and that privatisation actually, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs, a lot of people lost their livelihoods. So there were a lot of empty warehouses in London with broken dreams, you know. Thatcher was elected for a third consecutive term in 1987. Those who didn't support her were feeling pretty lost, disillusioned, and more than that, you couldn't even find solace in nightlife as the laws at the time saw most pubs and clubs closing earlier than ever. But it just so happened that around that same time, a music revolution was beginning. Electronic music from the clubs of Midwestern USA made its way across the pond to the UK. At the start of 1987, the absolute classic Jack Your Body by Steve Silk Hurley became the UK's first ever house music number one paving the way for the music genre of acid house to make its way into mainstream consciousness. This also came hand in hand with the rise of club drugs like acid and MDMA, despite the government, police and media peddling intense propaganda campaigns against them. The youth of Thatcher's Britain needed a form of escapism, even just for a few hours, and acid house and pills became the vehicle for that escape. The summer of 1989 saw what was dubbed the second summer of love, with outdoor raves and parties exploding up and down the newly built M25. The kids were using sophisticated methods of evading police, not releasing venues until the last minute, temporary phones to connect with each other and requiring passwords for information. But the government hit back. Margaret Thatcher, she actually created a form the new unit and this unit was called the Police Pay Party Unit. And they, what they also did was, for the first time in British history, they networked computers all around the country. It was the first time they'd ever done it. They would take your name and address and you would go in this central database. As well as the Pay Party Unit, by 1990, the UK had passed the Entertainment Act. Fines of up to £20,000 could be imposed on the organisers of illegal raves. And Section 63 of the 1994 Criminal Justice Act really put the nail in raves' coffin. It gave the police the power to shut down events featuring music of a succession of repetitive beats. I know, right? It sounds like one of those ye old English antiquated laws, but misappropriated for use in the 1990s. You can really see why Andy was drawn to all of this. Maybe the police crackdown even spurred him on. But by 1990, when he was planning his own rave, Andy even knew that the police were aware of what he was planning and his crew were beginning to lose their bottle. 
People can say what they want about me, but I'm a man of my word. If I say that something's going to happen, I'm going to do it, then I will do it. And I'm like, you know what? I ain't pulling out. And, and Luke says to me, he says, but you'll get nicked. I says, well, so fucking what? I'm not letting people down. I've a lot of thousands of people were travel. I know are coming down from all over the place. And this was before we had social media to let to, to say it were cancelled. I think you'll agree that Andy probably should have canned the event. But as he says, he's a man of his word. And so while his fellow organisers scarpered, on the 16th of June 1990, Andy, along with a convoy of cars, headed off to Finger in a matchbox. So what happened then on the night? Well, How did it get out of control. Well, it got country? out of control because my 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 fucking crew let me down. But it still went down. It was still a massive party. It made the national news around. Well, it made international news. Our people contacting me from Australia that seen it on Sky News. Biggest bus in British history. Police raid. So how many people were there? About two and a half thousand, maybe. It turns out they were only able to play about one and a half songs. DJ Huggy managed to kickstart the event with hardcore uproar by Together. But just a few beats into his next track, the police were beginning to loom over the horizon. The music cut out. In the recording, you can hear the rabble of those who weren't yet arrested being stopped and searched. I've done nothing. No, no. I've done nothing. You're on video. Oh. Can everybody see that I've got no mask on me? I've done nothing. In the aftermath of the chaos, the papers reported 230 arrests, with another 700 more being questioned. The prisons in the surrounding area were absolutely stuffed with would-be partygoers. It's not really clear if this was just poor planning or if Andy's crew really did let him down. But this rave is a pretty good example of Andy's attitude to life. Just give it a go and when the dust has settled, it will either be a good result or a good story. So what happened to our fearless rave organiser? You'll have to wait until the next episode to find out. Because 1990 was also an important year for another member of our story over 200 miles away in Bristol. For the first few years of the 90s, Banksy was working as a freehand graffiti artist in Bristol's Dry Breads crew. It wasn't until 1998 that his first known large wall mural will appear, the Mild Mild West. Funnily enough, the mural was a response to the illegal party scene that was still on the rise. It featured a stuffed bear about to throw a Molotov cocktail at a group of riot police and is believed to be a reference to a New Year's Eve warehouse rave in Bristol, where partygoers were assaulted by police attempting to break up the event. It seems Andy and Banksy might have more common enemies than they might admit. But the pair never got to bond over their days in the illegal rave scenes, their hatred of the establishment and their mutual love of art. Who knows? If they had had the chance to have a chat face to face, they might even have been best mates. If Andy had let what Banksy had said to him in 2003 go... He says you can fuck off your tight-arse northerner, you should have bought a signed print. Perhaps we would be in a different situation. But one thing we know for sure to be true about Andy, he's not one to let sleeping dogs lie. His brain started ticking over. 
What could he do to get his own back at Banksy? He began searching for inspiration. In 1999, two artists operating under the name Mad For Real visited Tracy Emin's artwork, My Bed, which was being shown at the Tate Britain. You might know the one, an unmade bed surrounded by vodka bottles, magazines, ashtrays. It's become the stick to beat people with of what people love to loathe about modern art. Mad For Real went to the Tate and jumped all over poor Tracy's work of art slash unmade bed. Their performance was entitled, creatively, Two Naked Men Jump in Tracy's Bed. Although to be clear, they only had their tops off. It was a supposed subversive interaction with a piece of public art. And something about it must have sparked an idea in Andy. And I've seen a few bit of these uh, of art terrorism and stuff like that. And I thought, that's fun, that. I can't just, I'm not just going to do it. If I do it as Linky, I'm just like, oh, yeah, fuck off, Linky. But if I do it, if I say I'm an, I'm an organist, I'm an art terrorist, I'm an artist myself, then I'm fighting them on their, on their ground. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm playing their game. They've got to play by the rules, right? And that's how Art Qaeda was born, That's right? how Art Qaeda was created. Art Qaeda is Andy's art movement. I am AK-47, leader and frontman of the auto-political humorist art terror group Art Qaeda. Andy's artist name, AK-47, has always intrigued me. But when I spoke to Andy's long-term pal, Gilly, the reality of the name took me a bit by surprise. Junction 47 was the turn-off for Wakefield on the M1, and that sort of was like... <laughs> Art Kidnap. It was Art Kidnap originally. So we were playing around with loads of names and Art Kidnap 47 was something to do with like Wakefield, Art Kidnap and then AK, Art Kader came a lot later. <laughs> I didn't know that Junction 47 was the turn off to Wakefield. So they came up with a manifesto for their new movement, part of which read, We are the new movement in artistic and political satire, professional piss takers on a global level. Andy had become an art terrorist. And Banksy was his target. The world had been officially warned. So to really take the piss out of Banksy, Andy needed to do something big. Spray over some of his works? Cut them out a wall? That would all be too obvious, not dramatic enough. And essentially, petty vandalism. All it took was for Andy to get a tip-off from one of Banksy's inner circle for the first domino to fall into place. He said to me, oh, look, uh, we've just put a new piece out. He said, we put it on at Westway to start with, but he didn't like it there. It won't get it. Nobody fucking noticed it. He says, so we've moved it. And we've moved it to um, just at back of Tottenham Court Road there. And so Andy started setting a plan in motion. And I just thought, oh, well... Well, I'll get him with that. that. That seems a good way to get me on back on him because that's quite easy if you can hire a fucking lorry, which I've got connections, you know, all that kind of stuff. Logistics is one of my fortes. So, so once you decided that was the thing, who did you assemble to help you do it? Because like you said, you know, I've got contacts, I can get a lorry. Who did you thought think, right, this is my crack team that are going to help me do <laughs> mate this? mate called Rob. My mate called Rob, who's, who, who's what, what, you, what you call a cardboard gangster, really. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's fun to be around. So I chose Rob as my number two. We tried to speak to Rob for this series, but between our first and second contact with him, 
he and Andy seemingly had a big falling out. He asked us to remind Andy who his real friends were. So from deciding to do it to doing it, the kidnap didn't take that much. No. Just turn up. If you know the right people, you can get a team together like that. (laughs) So how long was it before you deciding to do it to actually doing it? About three days. Wow. Because simple, we didn't know how long it was going to be there. We thought somebody else might have it away. Somebody might steal it and we didn't want anybody to steal it. So 72 hours from deciding to doing it to doing it, 24 hours before, or sort of the day, how are, you, how are you feeling that day? Nervous as fuck. Really? <laughs> yeah, because, well, uh, well, not, no, I'm excited more than nervous, you know what I mean? I've never even seen it. I didn't even go down on a reconnaissance of it. I'm very spontaneous. Andy tries and tries hard at everything he turns his mind to. But unfortunately, like his rave, he doesn't always succeed. I mean, come on. Can you really just show up in central London in the middle of the day with a truck and remove a statue by one of the most famous street artists in the world? That's coming up next time on Who Robs a Banksy. From Podomo and Message Heard, this has been Who Robs a Banksy. It was hosted by me, Jake Warren, and written and produced by B. Duncan. The music was composed by Tom Biddle, with sound design by Blue Posner and production support from Harry Stott. The sound engineer is Ivan Eastley. The story editor and executive producer for Message Heard is Sandra Ferrari. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. Listener.